welcome to another episode for our Ninja Nerd podcast. Today we're talking about acute pancreatitis. We have a lot to cover. We're going to try and give you all the high yield information that you need to know. Uh, but again, like, like I always say, go on to ninjanerd.org, grab our notes, our illustrations, follow along with us because it's really going to help you learn, or at least we hope it does. We really hope this is helping you guys. Yeah, out. man. I hope so too. <laughs> I, I really, I, I like these podcasts. I'll be honest with you. I sometimes go back and listen to them and I like to listen to podcasts when I don't have a ton of time to be able to dedicate to something. I'm driving somewhere. I'm a little busy and, you know, I'm, I'm kind of like trying to multitask. This is, I think this would be a great thing for a lot of you guys uh, just to be able to sit down, listen to these. And if you have the notes available, just kind of like kick back and relax and let us, uh, soothe you into understanding acute pancreatitis. <laughs> yeah, yeah. If you want to call it that. Yeah. <laughs> so first thing we have to get started with, Zach, is just like an overview of the pancreas and then kind of getting into the pathophysiology. So let's start there first. Yeah, pancreas, just remember, is a heterocrine gland. So it's pretty interesting because it has exocrine function and endocrine function. So it can make hormones, but it also can make like pancreatic juices, which sounds odd, but that's the way that they call it. But in general, whenever somebody has acute pancreatitis, the basic pathogenesis is you're destroying the, uh, you know, the pancreatic ductal cells, the pancreatic or synar cells, whether it be like a direct or indirect toxicity. Um, and so what happens is there's like this impaired secretion and, and a premature activation of some of these digestive enzymes that the pancreas makes. And whenever they're undesirably activated, they start to auto digest the pancreatic tissue and cause a massive inflammation. Now, I guess the question that kind of comes about is like, what causes this unnecessary, you know, activation of digestive enzymes impairs the secretion and causes this massive pancreatic inflammation. I'm glad you asked. You can remember the mnemonic, I get smashed. And I think this is the best way to be able to kind of like run through the causes. Um, and so just to, you know, remember these guys, idiopathic is the first one, G gallstones, E ethanol, T trauma. Uh, the S is steroids, M mumps, a autoimmune S, my favorite, scorpion bites. Oh my gosh. <laughs> H is hypertriglyceridemia, and you can also consider hypercalcemia. Um, ERCP, which is the, uh, the particular procedure that we can utilize to get rid of gallstones. And then also a lot of different drugs. So I think out of all of these, particularly within the mnemonic, um, I get smashed. I think it's important to remember gallstones. These are going to be like 40% of the cases. So if a patient develops like a gallstone that kind of gets stuck within the common bile doctor near the apatic pancreatic ampulla, that can definitely be a very specific cause. Like 40% of the time, it's usually like a stone. Um, the second one I would actually be worth, you know, worth remembering would be alcohol. So this accounts for like 30%. So generally like the first attack after like 10 years of like heavy alcohol use or like chronic alcohol use with acute flares may pop up. So these are the big things to be thinking about. I would say out of all of these, these are definitely going to be the two most important ones, most common ones that account for about 70% of the cases is going to be gallstones and alcohol use, Rob. All right. Beautiful. Thank you for that summary, Zach. Next thing we have to talk about is the clinical features of acute pancreatitis. Really what are the main types of symptoms these patients are going to present with when they have pancreatitis? Yeah. So I think one of the big things, again, just recapping what we talked about, because we hit it pretty quickly, but again, pancreatitis, pathogenesis, there's inflammation, there's destruction, autodigestion of the pancreas causing a massive inflammation. Again, causes, I get smashed. Don't forget those. But the most important ones being gallstones and alcohol being the likely causes for a lot of these. It's not scorpion bites? <laughs> yeah, yeah, you would think, right? It's just like the most interesting one and just the most far out there ones. But it's got to be like the coolest thing ever. I hey, think it's an etiology. you got to complete that mnemonic, right? I know. <laughs> you got to figure out a way. But yeah, I'd say those are the big things to remember. But when we talk about a patient who's coming in who has concerns for pancreatitis, oftentimes the most common chief complaint is an epigastric abdominal pain. Like 90% of the time, Rob. So... I think 
Maybe only like 50% of the time patients will present with like a classic band-like pain that radiates to their back. Like they say, oftentimes it's just this like gnawing epigastric abdominal pain. So that would be the first thing I would look for. The second thing is I would look for nausea and vomiting because whenever you get a lot of that inflammation, the pancreas can kind of like narrow the duodenum. It can move, it can alter like the movement of like chyme and food from the stomach into the duodenum. And so it can definitely cause a lot of distension of the stomach and then subsequently like vomiting as a result. The other thing is abdominal tenderness. So if you go to the bedside, you're palpating around their abdomen and you're feeling a lot of like tenderness and specifically guarding or decreased bowel sounds as well, because sometimes you can actually get an ileus with pancreatitis as well. I would think about that. Another really, really good key here, especially for like a, um, a gallstone is if you get a gallstone that gets stuck in the hepatopancreatic ampulla, it can block the excretion of bile into the duodenum and can back up the common bile duct, back up into the hepatic duct, back into the bloodstream, and then you can end up with like a jaundice type of appearance. So think about that. That may lead to your actual etiology. Other things I think that's really important, especially if the inflammation starts getting really, really bad around the pancreas and starts causing kind of like a hemorrhagic necrosis, it can actually cause bleeding into the retroperitoneal cavity. And so you want to look for that classic like Cullen sign around the umbilicus or periumbilical area, and then Gray Turner sign around the flank. Relatively rare, but something to think about. And that would be kind of the big clinical feature. So look for that epigastric abdominal pain. That's going to be 90% of the time. Nausea, vomiting, abdominal tenderness, maybe some guarding. If they do have decreased bowel sounds, that could be due to a localized ileus from the inflammation. And jaundice may lead to like a suspicion of a biliary obstruction. And look for any signs of retroperitoneal hemorrhage like Cullen sign or Gray-Turner sign. So those would be the big kind of clinical features to think about, Rob. All righty. Okay. My next question, how about the diagnosis? How do you diagnose a patient with acute pancreatitis? That's a great question. So generally, pancreatitis is actually kind of not too difficult to be able to diagnose. The diagnosis requires like two of the three kind of following things. So you need that characteristic epigastric abdominal pain. The second thing is you're looking for a lipase or amylase, particularly lipase. Specifically, when we talk about these two, like you have lipase and amylase, these are two of the particular types of enzymes that you can make by your pancreas. But remember, you have amylase that's actually made by the salivary glands. So the lipase is a little bit way more specific for like a pancreatic inflammation. So look for lipase, specifically that one to be three times the upper limit of normal. So characteristic epigastric abdominal pain with nausea, vomiting, and then a lipase three times the upper limit of normal and imaging that is suggestive of pancreatitis. So let's say that we first go ahead, we get a patient, they come in, we're going to throw off a bunch of different labs at them. I think you can always start off with a CBC, a CMP, because you get your LFTs with that. And then also send off an amylase and a lipase. If your lipase comes back three times the upper limit of normal, that is a pretty good indicator, especially if they have epigastric abdominal pain. Boom, you've made the diagnosis of pancreatitis. The other things that you could consider as well, like is looking at their AST, their ALT, and their bilirubin. If their AST is up, their ALT is up, their bilirubin is up, that may be due to a biliary, uh, like stone, like a stone that's obstructing the biliary tree, causing those molecules to back up into the bloodstream and elevate those as well. The other thing is don't, cons- don't also rule out, you know, checking through their medication list, look through the medications that they may be taking. Uh, a lot of drugs can cause this, especially like the HIV medications. Um, the other thing is actually going through and particularly looking at their triglyceride level. So if, especially if you have a concern for it, maybe check a triglyceride level because that could also be a cause. Hypertriglyceridemia, if it's greater than a thousand, that could be concerning. Check for hypercalcemia, so throw off a calcium level as well. Those are some of the big things that I think you could send off right away. Look at their history though. Do they have any autoimmune disorders that they've been taking steroids? I think this may kind of point to your etiology as well. So if you're working them up for the diagnosis of pancreatitis, all you need is the characteristic abdominal pain and lipase three times the upper limit of normal. If you're looking for the etiology though, you could order things like 
again, lab-wise, check the ALT, AST off of your CMP, your bilirubin, that'll be able to tell you that. And then also checking a triglyceride, a calcium level, and looking through their history and medication list. For imaging, I think that's really, really important here is an abdominal ultrasound. That's really actually not too bad. It's typically kind of not super, super helpful for being able to like visualize the pancreas because sometimes the bowel gas can kind of get in the way. But I think it's the absolute best for being able to rule out a biliary etiology. So if you order a right upper quadrant ultrasound and you rule out that they have like they don't have any kind of stone or they do have a stone within the biliary tract, boom, you have an idea of what was the actual particular cause of their pancreatitis. So get a right upper quadrant ultrasound just to rule out a biliary or gallstone cause for their pancreatitis. I think one of the best tests, though, to definitely get a good look at the pancreas and how much inflammation you have and if there's any other associated complications is going to be a CT of the abdomen. And so what I would do here is to go ahead and take a look at this, especially just to rule out any kind of associated complications. Do they have like a, you know, pancreatic necrosis? Do they have a pancreatic pseudocyst? Do they have like a pancreatic abscess or rule out any other kind of associated complications? But generally, when you get a CT of the abdomen, you'll be able to see a lot of like peripancreatic fat stranding and inflammation. And again, sometimes you may see some local complications such as necrosis of the pancreas, walled off necrosis, fluid collections that may be sterile or infected like an abscess. Um, and so those are big things things to be able to think about. You could also, if like, you know, for your patient who you're not really completely sure you want to rule out that they don't have any kind of like stones or ductal dilation, you could consider like an MRCP. I don't think that that's absolutely necessary though for these patients. So oftentimes diagnosis, just look for the epigastric abdominal pain, classic features, lipase three times the upper limit of normal. You can get an imaging study like a right upper quadrant ultrasound to rule out a biliary etiology and a CT of the abdomen to get a better look at the pancreas and how inflamed it is and also look for any local complications. That would be kind of the big thing. And then if you're trying to also figure out other etiologies, check a trig level, check a calcium level, run through their history and medication list. All right. Sounds good to me. Let's move in now to, to treatment. Let's really put this uh, lecture into perspective and let's finish it up strong here, Zach. So I think oftentimes when people come in with pancreatitis, like, and this is one of my fears is that they just just put them on like a massive amount of fluids. Yes. And a patient who has pancreatitis, they definitely do third space. They have a lot of inflammation that it causes a lot of third spacing of fluid. And so they can become dehydrated, hypovolemic. But oftentimes we give these patients so much darn fluid. It's absolutely insane. And then they just like puff up and look like marshmallows. You know, it's like, oh, God. Yeah, yeah, it's like, there's like a saying, you gotta, you gotta get sweat, you gotta swell to get well and you gotta pee to be free. So it's like, oftentimes we fill people up with like 12 liters of fluid. And then after we get them off a little bit better, we, you know, we start diuresing them. So, so you do want to get, get fluid, but not like a crazy amount. Yeah. Yeah. Don't be like blasting people with like 10 liters of fluid. Straight okay. up. Yeah. So I, I think oftentimes like it's just trying to be able to utilize, you know, your diagnostic, your, your clinical gestalt. So I think going to the bedside, taking a look at the patient, generally like one, two liters of fluid, maybe within the first 24 hours, you may even go up to three and then start them on kind of an LR infusion. I think LR is way superior to normal saline. Um, so giving them fluids, I think is really going to be the big thing. IV fluids, LR over normal saline and just don't hit them with like so much fluids that they turn into a marshmallow or you cause like an abdominal compartment syndrome. Because I think that's one of the complications is you can see if you put a patient on all these fluids, you start them bolusing them and then you put them on a maintenance rate of like 250 an hour and then you come back later and you're wondering why they're in respiratory distress or why they aren't making any urine and they have like an abdominal compartment syndrome. That's something to be concerned about. Also, pancreatitis, there is potential where it can actually cause a complication such as ARDS. So there is complications of this where it can actually cause ARDS. And if you fluid overload them, that could definitely make it worse. Also, if you fluid overload them to the point where you have so much fluid to accumulate in the abdomen, it can cause an abdominal compartment syndrome. So definitely things to watch out for. The other thing is nutrition. So it's really important to be able to feed these patients early. It definitely, the data has been able to, like it showed that it's superior to actually start early enteral feeding as soon as possible. 
Um, generally, uh, the other thing is analgesia. These patients are in a ton of pain. So IV opioids are definitely going to be kind of like the go-to here. Uh, these patients really are in pain. So giving them good analgesia is definitely important. But for, I think also thinking about the causes. So if a patient has like a gallstone pancreatitis, you really want to get an ERCP on them as soon as possible with a syncterotomy, at least within 24 hours, just because if you don't treat that gallstone, it can definitely progress into cholangitis and they can become septic. So I would definitely take a look at that and consider like maybe a cholecystectomy or um, if they absolutely need it. Um, but an ERCP with a sphincterotomy is definitely going to be something if they have a nasty gallstone that's blocking up their biliary duct and can definitely increase the risk of cholangitis. So fluids, nutrition early as can be. If they do, or if they, here's the other thing I would say, Rob, if they really are like vomiting a lot, then you got to be careful with nutrition. So maybe you have to throw like an NG tube down or a dab off and maybe like decompress their stomach a little bit and give them a time period of where they're MPO. But there has been literature that says that try to feed them early if they are having like a ton of nausea and vomiting. Then analgesia again, gallstone pancreatitis, again, ERCP with a sphincterotomy early as possible. Here's the other thing. If they have hypertriglyceridemia, if you throw off a trig level and it comes back super elevated, they actually say that you should start a patient on an insulin drip and then maybe add on something like fibrates. And if it's super, super high and they're non-responsive to the insulin and the fibrates, you can do something called uh, apheresis where you literally like suck off the actual triglycerides out of their bloodstream. So that'd be the big things. I would not, and I repeat, not start these patients on uh, prophylactic antibiotics just because there is no actual like literature to support that. Um, again, if they don't have any kind of like true infection and diagnostic of infection there, I would not start these patients on empiric antibiotics with uh, acute pancreatitis. The last thing I would say is complications that patients can develop from uh, pancreatitis. Definitely, like I said, because there's so much inflammation, it can actually cause diffuse alveolar damage and lead to ARDS. We already talked about this, especially as a result of not just third spacing of fluid into the actual peritoneal cavity, but also aggressive, aggressive IV fluid resuscitation. It can cause an abdominal compartment syndrome. The other thing is if you actually aren't giving them enough fluids, and this is where you can kind of go wrong, you don't give them enough fluids and they're super dehydrated, they're not perfusing their kidneys. If they have a decreased renal perfusion, they can develop a pretty nasty acute kidney injury. The other thing is if they have a pseudoaneurysm that chews into the actual blood supply to the actual GI tract, it can cause a GI bleed via like a pseudoaneurysm. And believe it or not, it can actually cause so much inflammation. It alters your normal coagulation proteins and can put a patient into DIC if it's super severe. Metabolic-wise... If there's a lot of inflammation of the pancreas, it actually causes what's called saponification. So it sucks up a lot of the calcium and can cause hypocalcemia. The other thing is, think about this. What is your pancreas also responsible for doing, helping to make insulin? So you might actually see a drop in the ability to make insulin. And so their glucose levels may actually go up and they may develop hyperglycemia. The other things I think is important to remember as the very acute local complications of a patient developing pancreatitis is they can develop a lot of acute fluid collections. This is generally seen early. They don't become encapsulated and they usually resolve on their own within about one to two weeks. You don't need to start these patients on any kind of antibiotics or drain it. A pseudocyst is the second thing that they may develop kind of like four weeks after their initial attack. And again, it's encapsulated. You don't need to treat them if they're asymptomatic. Leave it alone. Regardless of how big that sucker is, do not touch them. If they are becoming symptomatic, it's causing a lot of pain, then you can consider doing like a percutaneous or surgical drainage. The last kind of complication here is if the pancreatic tissue starts to become necrotic, it starts to become non-viable pancreatic tissue. Then the concern is, is it sterile necrosis? Is it an infected necrosis or is it an abscess? And that's the scary thing. And oftentimes in order to be able to figure that out is we have to do like a fine needle aspiration to see if there is any true infection in that area. And if you don't find any infection, and if they're asymptomatic, it's likely that it's just a sterile necrosis. Do not give them antibiotics. If it comes back where they do have an infection in the area, generally this is about like 5% of all cases. 
they do have a high mortality rate if they do have an infected pancreatic necrosis. I would actually start these patients on antibiotics. Generally, a carbapenem, because those are just like, you know, antibiotic bombs, um, or you could do something like metronidazole and a fluoroquinolone. Uh, but I think carbapenems are generally going to be the preferred one. And then generally trying to source control. So percutaneous drainage um, and debridement of the actual infected necrosis area is going to be important. The last complication that you don't want to watch out for the pancreatic necrosis, if it starts to actually cause pus to accumulate within the necrotic tissue, and this actually starts to become like a circumscribed collection of pus, that would be a pancreatic abscess. Usually you see these about more than four weeks into the actual course of pancreatitis. Generally, you got to start them on antibiotics, again, carbapenem or metronidazole plus fluoroquinolone, but it's likely going to require drainage. And it's usually CT-guided drainage is going to be necessary in these patients with a pancreatic abscess. Whew. You done crushed that one, man. <laughs> Thanks, buddy. Awesome job. Very, very thorough, beautiful, a short podcast. That's it. That's uh, end of acute pancreatitis. Yeah, dude. I, I hope you guys like this. I hope it was a little <laughs> bit more like streamlined, straight to the point. I wanted you guys to get the basic uh, concept out of pancreatitis, which is, again, knowing the basic pathogenesis, the I get smashed etiology for the actual et- like particular causes of this, knowing the most common clinical features, which is the epigastric abdominal pain, nausea, vomiting. Look for any signs of biliary obstruction with the jaundice. Look for any signs of retroperitoneal bleeding. Again, know the two diagnostic things out of the three that you absolutely need. Epi- gastric abdominal pain, a lipase three times the upper limit of normal. And then if you have any positive imaging, like a right upper quadrant ultrasound or a CT of the abdomen. Again, treatment, always give IV fluids, keep them MPO, but if they can and tolerate some eating, definitely feed them. Literature actually says early enteral feeding is going to be the best. Maybe you have to use an NG tube to be able to do that analgesia with IV opioids, and again, trying to figure out what was the cause. If it was a gallstone pancreatitis, ERCP with a sphincterotomy, maybe a cholecystectomy in long term. If it was hypertriglyceridemia, insulin drip, fibrates, and if that doesn't work, apheresis, and then watch out for those particular complications. Don't fluid overload your patients and worsen their develop ARDS or worsen their abdominal compartment syndrome. Make sure you give them enough fluids so they don't develop an AKI. Watch for any evidence of a hemoglobin drop with GI bleeds or DIC. Check their calcium levels because actually over time they can actually drop their calcium and watch their glucose levels because they may become hyperglycemic. And again, if they have fluid collections, like an acute fluid collection or pseudocyst, do not touch it. Don't put them on antibiotics until they actually become symptomatic. You can consider draining a pseudocyst. For an, a concern for a necrotic, necrotic tissue, if it's sterile, you would actually confirm that with a fine needle aspiration. If it's infected, you would confirm that. And if again, if it's an abscess, the treatments for those are different. You actually do CT-guided uh, drainage for the abscess. And then for the infected necrosis, you actually have to debride, perk drain, and then again, carbapenems or metronidazole plus fluoroquinolones for the infected necrosis or the pancreatic abscess. So engineers, I thank you guys for being so awesome, always sticking with us. Love you. Thank you. And as always, until next time. 